Ephesians in the second chapter. Stand this morning for the reading of God's word. And showing respect for the scriptures as was a practice in the Old Testament and the New. Ephesians 2, we'll start our reading with verse 11 and read down through verse um, 17. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you are at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He has made us both one. and has broken down in his flesh the, in the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself a new man in place of the two, making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please be seated. Please go to prayer and pray for me as I preach this text and pray for yourselves as you sit on the proclamation of God's word this morning. Let's pray. Our God in heavenly Father, we do pray for your grace, that your spirit, O Lord, will work in the midst of this congregation. Where there is unbelief, we pray, O God, for grace of belief. Where there is despair, we pray, O God, for encouragement. Where there is arrogance, we pray for humility. And ask you to work grace upon grace to heal, O Lord, any that are downcast and that need encouragement. We be encouraged this morning by the scriptures as your Spirit works in Christ's name. Amen. When you look at the world today and you see uh, how individuals are living their lives, one thing seems to become apparent. There's a great lack of peace among us all over the place. We live in a very affluent society. Uh, we have a lot of people that are extremely wealthy, and no one here, as far as I know, is lacking a house and a television, and probably two automobiles, if not three automobiles. We are well blessed. And as you see people striving after things, I think we can say that in our modern day, that uh, people throughout the world are striving to become wealthy. They're striving to become powerful. They're striving to become, to become influential But I think, again, as you look at the world, one thing that seems to be lacking that I think everyone, if they were honest, would admit that they want, and that is a sense of well-being and peace. You all know the story of John Newton. He was a slave trader. And he was on a ship, and there was a storm that came upon the ship so that they were afraid they were going to sink. He was the captain of the ship. And there were some... Moravians on board, German Christians, and the Moravians were sitting praying without any hint, at least, of being in distress or despair. The Lord used that to finally move John Newton to himself so that he became a believer and he wrote that beautiful hymn, Amazing Grace. 
Is your life this morning characterized by a sense of calm? Is your life this morning characterized by a sense of peace? Or are you one who's overwhelmed with a sense of guilt, overwhelmed with a sense of confusion, overwhelmed with unsteadiness in your life as you live day in and day out? The text this morning speaks to us of the one who gives peace. And in order to have that peace, there must be an absolute unadulterated, resting in full confidence upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his work that he's done for the benefit of his people and that God is kind and good. And that whatever happens, the peace that you have with God through Christ will not be changed. You can imagine when they took the apostle Paul and beheaded him that he was at peace. Imagine when they took the Apostle Peter and nailed him to a cross and hung him upside down, as tradition has it, he was at peace. Not that they looked forward to the pain, the beheading, the crucifixion, but they were at peace with God and trusting his promises that when this was over, however painful it may be, that they would be in glory with their Savior. Remember some time ago, again, I bring it up, that those... uh, those Christians that the Muslims took out, and they were all dressed in orange jumpsuits. They uh, had them all kneel down, and they beheaded every one of them, when all they would have to do would be to renounce Christ and live. But they wouldn't do it. And though it was surely uh, blood pressures raised, hearts pounding as they knelt there, waiting for the sword and the steel of the sword to meet their flesh and sever their heads. That was a very anxious time. But they knelt in peace that was given to them through Christ in God. What happens to see this morning as we look at this text, that Christ came and established peace in the world by his life and death and resurrection. It is a pure peace. It is a true peace. Is a lasting peace, and it is only through Christ who established real peace that that peace can be had and enjoyed. Now, as believers, we know that we do not always have a sense of peace in God's presence. We don't always have it. And there are times when we lack that. There are times in the midst of trials when we lack that. And yet God hasn't gone anywhere, and nothing changes as far as God is concerned. It is our lives and our mindset that has changed. The first thing then, the priest established by Christ was costly. Paul writes how glorious the gospel is. The opening phrases, opening sentences of Ephesians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He predestined us for adoption. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. In him we have peace with God. All of these things that he mentions here in the opening of the uh, first and second chapter of the book of Ephesians. And then in this chapter, second chapter in verse 11, he says this. We looked at this last week. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called by the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that at one time you were separated from Christ. 
And we can ask ourselves this question. Is there any way to have peace with God apart from faith in, apart from trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? And the answer is no. You can't be good enough because God's mandate is perfection. God's rule is perfection. You can't be perfect. I can't be perfect. No one can stand before God and say, look at me. I've kept all of your law. I've never had one wicked thought. I've never done one thing wrong. I have lived perfectly before you. No one can do that. So there is no way to have peace in this world, peace of mind, except in and through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what has he done then? If he gives us peace, what's he done then? Well, we read in the scriptures here in this text that it is by his blood that we have this standing before God. Now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once so far off and brought near by the blood of Christ. What does this mean? By the blood of Christ. You at one time, you Gentiles, not a part of the nation of Israel, uh, you had no covenant promises. You had no covenant uh, uh, shadows of the things to come in Christ. You had no prophets. You had no teachers. You had no claim on the things that God had promised to the nation of Israel. Well, Christ changed that. And we read in the scriptures that he broke down the dividing wall, which is a reference to the temple wall that kept the Gentiles out from the inner parts of the temple where the sacrifices were made. And if they crossed over that, they were to be put to death. And on penalty of death, they crossed that wall. Well, by his blood, then, we read here, they have been brought near. In Ephesians, he says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. If you really understand what Paul has written in these texts, in these verses, if you really believe what Paul has written in these verses, if you believe them, if you base your life upon them, if you recognize the grace of God that has taken you out of a position of no hope, listen, you're going to die. You're going to die one day. You don't know when. It'd be like Harry Reader who was driving along in the road and all of a sudden he hits the back of a dump truck and he dies at 75 years of age. I guarantee you, he did not wake up expecting to leave this world that day. He did not expect that. He expected to get wherever he was going. But it didn't happen. The day is going to come when you are going to give up your life. And it is in the things that Paul writes here to these Ephesians that gives us hope as we think about and contemplate our own death. In him you have been brought near by his blood. Well, the phrase by his blood indicates several things to us. In the first place, uh, it takes uh, talks of necessity of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It talks about the necessity of the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. It talks of the necessity of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, that when he died on the cross of Calvary, it was not simply as one dying at the hands of men, as one who died at the hands of God. And that as Christ hung upon the cross of Calvary and as he experienced the wrath and condemnation of his Father for the sins of his people, that that is our hope. That should not be boring to anybody. 
The gospel, as I have said before, should never become humdrum to any Christian, to any believer. I can see I can be to a non-believer. They don't believe it, but not to a Christian. As you think about what Christ has done and you think about what he's opened up for you now by his life and death and resurrection, it should be something that causes you to rejoice. Not to be bored by it, not to be sleepy by it, not to have any sort of lack of interest in it, but rather to be excited about it. Here in the expression of God's grace and loving kindness to a people that deserve the exact opposite of his grace, the exact opposite of his kindness. None of us here can say we stand before God of one who has merited salvation. When the apostle tells these Ephesians to remember the, the times before when they were uncircumcised, uh, that is, they were not a part of the nation of Israel, Sinclair Ferguson said he caused him to re- remember that because Christians are so apt to get arrogant. that They begin to think and reason that perhaps something that I did, something about me that caused God to express grace to me, and that's simply not true. The reason that God granted grace to you, the reason that God granted grace to me, the reason that any of us are a part of the family of God rests entirely with God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. From all time we read, he loved his people. And so that we are a part of that kingdom, we are part of those blessings by the grace of God. For grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God we read here in these texts. As God calls on these Ephesians to think back what they were before they had these spiritual advantages and they just had the disadvantages, again, he would not leave them to linger there unless he put them in despair. There is no reason for a believer to ever be in despair. God sometimes seems quite quiet, does he not? He sometimes seems so terribly far away, does he not? And then we may have a sense that we are praying and we're praying and we're praying and we're praying and God seems to be not hearing. He seems to be not listening to our pleads as we pray and pray and pray. And yet... Faith tells us, because we're instructed so from the scriptures, that he hears every word that we make and he hears everything that we desire. And he answers according to the wisdom of his own nature. They are brought near by the work of Christ, by his sacrifice, by his resurrection, by his ascension, by his intercession. That's how you were brought near. The same way that these first century Christians were brought near to God is the way that we who were Gentiles are brought near and Jews as well. Any Jew that is a part of the family of God. And you remember Paul says in, in Romans, the true Israel are those who are in Christ. That's the true Israel. Those who are in Christ Jesus. We are the true Israel, he says. The true descendants of Abraham as God promised to bless the nations through Abraham. And his descendants, that descendant being the Lord Jesus Christ, ultimately, the one who would come, the one who would pay the price, the one who would die for his people and be raised on behalf of his people. 
and a part of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ brings together divergent groups. I have been to churches in Mexico when I was down there for a mission trip. I've been to churches in Scotland. Uh, we were over there for the bagpipe competition. Didn't get to one when his parents took us, I mean, our aunt and uncle took us to, to uh, Paris. I don't remember why. We didn't find a place. They didn't speak English, many of them. But there is something about gathering with Christians in another country where you don't have the same culture, you don't have the same interests, you don't have the same uh, surroundings. But there's something that unites you, and that's Christ. You can go and fellowship with people you don't know, you've never met. Through Christ you have that fellowship. So he says here in the text that he has made them one. He brings together divergent groups. Those who are true descendants of Abraham, he brings them together. And so that now you see what has happened in the church is there is a unity in the church. Listen, there are not five churches. There are not four churches. There are not three churches. There is one church. And that is those who are a part of the family of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is one church. And what Christ has done here is bring together those who were out of step with his promises in the Old Testament. And so that now you do not have to be circumcised to be a part of the family of God. You do not have to be a part of the nation of Israel to be the part of the family of God. As a matter of fact, if that's what you're counting on, uh, as a Jew, being a part of the nation of Israel, there's no salvation there unless one comes to faith in Christ. It's absolutely marvelous what he has done here. And so we recognize again that the dividing wall has been knocked down. He's made the two one. And cultural distinctions make no difference in the fellowship of the church unless those cultural distinctions are contrary to Scripture. For example, polygamy. We cannot say that that's okay because the Bible says it's not okay. Christ says it's not okay. So you have a church here that they practice polygamy, and we have to say, no, we can't fellowship with that. We can't do that. Or imagine mandatory abortion. You've had your one child. That's it. That's all you get. You have another one. Pregnancy come in. We're going to terminate that pregnancy. And the church says, okay. We said, no, we can't do that. We cannot go along with that because it's wrong. There are other things that we can think of that um, uh, perhaps uh, the practice of eugenics, Hitler-esque type of eugenics, that we want to have this society that is uh, uh, very healthy and uh, uh, we get rid of those then for who uh, have deformities and those who have challenges and those who are, are so-called handicapped and these types of things as Hitler taught to do. And so we get churches that would see this and think this is a good idea. And we have to say no. Well, that's not a good idea. That's wrong. There is a film that was uh, uh, based on a book by Francis Schaeffer. I can't remember if it's uh, Whatever Happened to the Human Race or How Should We Then Live is one of those film series. 
And Dr. Everett Coop, who used to be the Surgeon General, is standing at a conveyor belt. And as he stands there, there's these dolls that are going by. And if a doll has a leg missing, he picks it up and casts it away into a garbage bin. If it has something else wrong, he takes it and casts it away into a garbage bin. And so it is only those that come by that have everything they're supposed to have, and they're quite healthy, and they're quite well, that are allowed to live. That's eugenics. That's what Hitler had that in mind. We as a church and as Christians would have to say we cannot go along with that. And we would say, well, that's never going to happen. Not in our country. Not in a civilized world. And I would say you're terribly wrong. You're terribly wrong. Jeremiah 17, 9, the mind is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? And so when it talks about the two becoming one, it's the two becoming one in Christ. Cultural differences make no difference so far as they are not in conflict with the word of God. And so that I can fellowship with somebody that I can't speak their language. I can go and I can worship with that individual and I cannot speak their language so long as the preaching is in English. When I was over in Africa um, preaching so many years ago now, and we went to uh, a church called Zahn's. And it was made up of many, many Africans that lived in that part of, uh, uh, of Africa. And the music was different. And the uh, pastor... Uh, whose English was difficult for me to understand, although he was, I can make it out. Uh, he had actually been to Westminster West. He was a new Joey Piper. He was uh, acquainted with Dr. Piper. And it was a great time of fellowshipping together and worshiping together as God's people because there's just one church. There are not two churches. There's one church made up of many different languages and many different people. And so here, this work of Christ upon the cross of Calvary, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, makes them one. And God did that on purpose in order that he may have one group of people to worship him. So the man, Jesus Christ, is rightly called the Prince of Peace. He's established peace. And so that people from different parts of the world can be one in the Lord Jesus Christ and they're to live in peace with one another. You know what Jesus said to the disciples? My peace I give to you. Not as the world but my peace, which is different, it's not based upon circumstances. It's not based upon uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, collection of things that you have. It's not based upon security and money. It's based upon me, said Jesus. My peace I give to you. Well, what is that peace? It's the peace of knowing. Listen to this. It's the peace of knowing that God loves me, that God is sovereign, And God works all things for my good in some way or another, though I may not understand it. We've had several people been diagnosed with cancer in this church. I love this congregation. There's no one here I don't love. And when I heard the news, broken, heartbreaking to think about what they might have to go through. That's unity. That's the peace that Christ has brought between people as they love one another, as they care for one another, all because of the peace that Christ has established between one individual and another. Christ indeed is called the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 90, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. 
and the government shall rest upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. You all know this text from Isaiah 9. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That last appellation referring to Jesus there is Prince of Peace. Think of this. He has taken out of the hand of God, if you will, a sword that was aimed at your heart and given it in this place a loving and kind reach and soothing hand. That's what Christ has done by his life and death and resurrection. And listen to this. Jesus is the only source of true and lasting peace. If you depend upon circumstances to give you peace, what's going to happen? You know circumstances are not always peaceful. You go into a home and you hear a husband and wife fighting with one another, screaming at one another. That's no place of peace at all. You uh, are expecting a child. And uh, the mother goes in to have a C-section and she wakes up and they say, your child's dead. It's fine yesterday. Don't know what happened. But he's gone. Happened to my mother. I can't imagine that. As I've gotten older, I've had children, I cannot imagine. You go into the delivery room and the doctor says, sorry. Where is peace in a time like that? Those circumstances do not in any way generate peace or joy or confidence or comfort. But yet it is the God who had the life of that child in his hand that we understand from grace and scripture that the Lord decided for some reason to take that child and to glory. There's the peace. There's the peace. We're not the judge of all the world. Do what is right. So Christ, then, is the great peacemaker. Listen to this. Only Jesus can take a sinner and make him a saint. Only Jesus can take a sinner and make him a saint. Only Jesus can take an enemy of God and bring him into the family of God as a child of God. Only Jesus can take away the fear and dread of death. You know, when, um, when I went last before, um, before Bill lost the ability to speak, and incubus of the disease had not gotten control of him, he said, uh, I think I'm dying. I may have told you all this. I'm sorry if I did. I don't remember. And I said, you, you are dying. You're dying. They've discontinued your medication. He said, really? And I said, are you ready to go? He said emphatically, yes. That is one who has the peace of Christ in his heart and mind, facing the ultimate uh, challenge, if you will, with confidence. Yes. Said that faithful man of God who had preached Christ so faithfully throughout all the years, 
of his life, faithfully proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see here in this text where it says here he abolished the, the law does not mean the Ten Commandments. It means the ordinances connected through the sacrifices that point to the Lord Jesus Christ. The sacrifice has been made. There's not to be another one. But Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So the Ten Commandments have not been abolished. Some might like to think they were, but they have not been abolished. And so the dictates of living in the Old Testament, as far as obedience are concerned, are just as important today as they were prior to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Alistair Begg, as you know, uh, is from Glasgow. And you know I like to listen to him and his sermons. He told a story, and I knew this had happened. John Lennon was driving his psychedelically painted Rolls Royce in Scotland. He was not a good driver. He had several wrecks. And he is with Yoko Ono, and they're driving the highlands of Scotland. He has an accident, drives off the road, and is in a car crash and put in the hospital. Both of them were in the hospital. Uh, and Scotland say hospital. They don't, they don't use the article. I don't know why they don't use the article. Hospital. He's in hospital. Well, Alistair Begg had a friend named Davy. I can't remember Davy's last name, but Davy goes to see John Lennon and Yoko Ono. And uh, Alistair Begg said he did what he was supposed to do. He did not ask for autographs. He presented the gospel. And you can tell Alistair Begg is a fan of the Beatles and a fan of John Lennon. And he said this, the one who spoke about peace all the time, the one who sang about peace all the time, he said he hoped that from Davy's presentation of the gospel that John Lennon would have learned what peace was really all about before he died. We don't know. So I ask you this morning, do you have real peace in your life? Do you know what it is to stand upon the deck in the storms of life and to have confidence as the Moravians did in that storm as John Newton watched them and was kind of yearning for that kind of peace that they had? I'll tell you this. The amount of peace you have in your life is directly related to the amount of faith you have in God. The amount of peace you have in your life is directly related to the amount of faith you have in God, in his promises, in his provision. In his presence, in his encouragement through the scriptures. If you don't believe those things, if you really don't trust God, you're not going to have peace. You're not. Your peace is going to be very unstable. And it's going to be determined by the circumstances you face in your life, not by the promises of God. So if you look at your life and you really don't have any peace or any calm, it could be that you're not a believer. And I would encourage you to faith in Christ this morning. Jesus said, come unto me, all you labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So that you don't have to stand and wonder, am I okay with God or not? If I died at this moment, would I be okay with God? Christ said, trust me. Trust me. And rest in me and my accomplished work on the cross of Calvary. And the last thing I would bring before us this morning is this. 
Christ has made God's people one in the church. Christ delights in the unity of the church. Not the disunity of the church, but the unity of the church. We are to love one another in this congregation deeply. The Bible says that, not me. I think it's a good idea. It's practical, right? It means the church functions as it's supposed to function. You've got people pulling knives on one another. It's not going to function like it's supposed to function. So this calls us uh, to be patient with one another, long-suffering with one another, kind to one another, and to pray for one another. Because Christ has made us one. We have the same Savior, the same hope, the same confidence and love. Let's pray.